0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing
1: Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next
0: adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Spear Factor Spear Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Whitman. Today's show is part two of our series with Brian and Al. Uh, Brian runs his spear fishing company, um, spear gun company, excuse me, uh, specializing in rollers and converting, you know, traditional pipe guns to rollers, uh, as well as all kinds of other stuff. He's got over like, both these guys have over like 30 years of experience, uh, diving and playing with different setups and things like that, all from, uh, Kauai uh, Hawaii, and it's just been an absolute blast speaking with them. If you heard the first part uh, podcast, you know what I'm talking about. It gets pretty funny, but I hope you guys enjoy this part. Don't forget, if you want to step up your spearfishing this summer, go ahead and check out spearfishingmentor.com. There's spearfishing classes. One of them's for free. Give you a little bit of an idea of what to expect. If you were to purchase the master class, there's over five hours of information on there for you guys so be sure to check out spearfishingmentor.com now I'd like to thank our sponsor Mr. Ted Hardy of Immersion Freediving Uh, enter promo code spearfactor for 15% off uh, on his 28 day freediving transformation course and uh, it's pretty awesome I've used it and I recommend it so you can find this course and the other courses Ted puts out for us at freedivingsafety.com um, like I said, enter the promo code SPEARFACTOR for the discount. And thanks, Ted, for sponsoring the show. Our next sponsor is Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, Paul has offered us 10% discount with a promo code SPEARFACTOR. So thanks, Paul, for making badass guns and uh, providing a hookup for our listeners. And Camera Sideslip. So Kamira Sideslip, you can purchase those at Camira Spearfishing. That's K-I-M-E-R-A. And basically, I've talked about the side slip before in the show. It's kind of the benefits of a slip tip without worrying about breaking your tip hunting around rocks. Uh, it replaces the flopper with a side slip. Uh, check it out more at the website. And if you use promo code SPEARFACTOR, all lowercase, at checkout, they'll give you 5% off. And if you'd like to uh, sponsor SpearFactor Podcast, feel free Uh you can go ahead and shoot me a note on the website, spiritfactor.com. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, One of the things about the shooting line that I thought was interesting that I know people with rollers are doing is the, the shark fin tab, um, the rest tab, and they're putting the line through the middle part to keep it out of interfering with the bands back on the shark fin tabs. Um, and I know like, you mean. know what I mean? Like where you got your rest tab in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. What I noticed was that, and they say like it, if it pulls, if the shooting line pulls on the spear, it's more in the middle rather than affecting the flight by tugging on the back. Yeah. Um, I know what you mean. Which I was like, yeah, I was like, that makes sense. Okay. But I remember when I shot my gun, uh, I had the shark fin on the tab and the, I had the hole for the, for the shooting line in the back and I was shooting cable. And what I noticed, yeah. And I noticed the cable, the bend radius of the cable cable is not, you know, but I remember I fired it and I felt this like, like pull weird thing. And it wasn't until I looked back and I missed the fish and I was like, how did that happen? And it wasn't until I looked back that I realized there was an entanglement, but it was this, the, the, the turning radius and the cable was so tight or was so uh, big that the fit through the, the bridle, the muzzle that it like yeah. popped it through. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I realized yeah, I needed to either get a new shaft to try to minimize the amount of cable I have or use just my Dyneema that I always use. But yeah. Dyneema seems to have
3: multiple purposes now um, from just being real line. Is having great success with Shooting Line 2, and the best thing about it, you can get strength of a Dyneema just as good as cable in a very, very small diameter with adequate stiffness that makes it a wonderful material to use. And I can't wait to see the day where we get the Dyneema uh, to a point where we start using that as a, uh, for the slip tips. Because to me, I think that Dyneema is much more abrasion-resistant than the than Spectra's.
2: So. Yes, 100% agree with you. I, I, I don't think people realize the difference. Uh, well, I know?
3: shot this, I was blue water diving about a couple years ago with a couple of friends. And then this big bait ball came in and all these kahalas came in. And the big kahala came in. I shot him with my with my gun with the Spectra. It was like a 30, 40-pound Kahala, but the Spectra, I assumed, was rubbing on one of the bones in his head, and it cut, and I lost the fish, and I lost my slip tip, so that's $100 gone right there. Now, i was thinking to myself, you know, if we could somehow put this Dyneema on here, I think I wouldn't have lost the fish, wouldn't have lost my slip tip. I think it's just, I think it's a more superior product overall. The spectrum, and I think we're gonna start seeing that route happening real soon, here, where is going to where that name is gonna be a standard on almost everything spearfishing.
1: So I think, as far as rigging, Brett, in in Hawaii especially, having the amount of reef, coral structure, ledges, overhangs, if you're still using monofilament, every time that fish wraps that reef, it's chafing. And unless you're super diligent about changing it out, there will come a time that you will lose the shaft, you will lose the fish. And another problem I see with monofilament is it trains. So when you wrap the muzzle and you come back to the line release and back up and back again, if you ever notice, when you remove it from the gun, those loops are trained into it.
3: Yeah, it's got memory. So when you
1: pull that trigger, that dumps off the side of the gun and that actually increases the drag of the forward projection of the shaft. But this is, this is like nerdy stuff, yeah. right? This, this has to do with like hydrodynamics. <laughs>
2: yeah. You know? I like this stuff.
1: But, but it's true, you know, so if someone disagrees with that, we can agree to disagree, but you know, physics, are factual
3: so going going back to what you mentioned about people rigging their shooting line in the middle on the rest tab on the roller guns to prevent tangles and stuff like that um you know there's a couple of variables that that depends on your muzzle design how wide your bridges are what kind of bridge you have uh, to me rigging your shaft line on the middle on the rest tab is not good because it creates a certain kind of drag, a certain kind of pull on the middle of the shaft as it's firing. You're going to want to rig that shaft line on the rear so there would be less drag and the shaft can actually be more free and be able to fly in this trajectory how it wants to. Um, and also, for, as far as drag of the shaft, you're going to want to go always go two wraps. A single wrap will create more drag and more pull on the rear end of the shaft. And that shaft will kind of go flying like that. Where if you have two wraps, a looser shaft line, a more free shaft line, your shaft will come out more flatter. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what I noticed when I used to have single wrap guns on like a 130. Thinking, you know, oh, this is I can probably get away with this since the gun is real long and have good range. I kind of noticed my shaft flying out like that. You know, it's weird on a single wrap, but when the shaft is more free or less, less, um, how you see that? Less drag on it with two with two wraps, it flies a lot flatter. Yeah, hydrodynamic. Yeah, well, it just flies a lot flatter. There's nothing holding it back almost. Where on a single wrap, it seems like it's kind of holding the shaft back. Yeah, I mean that's what I that's what I that's that's what I've learned on single wraps and double wraps. Never never single wrap a gun. You're not going to get a proper uh, shaft trajectory. Uh, we should be shooting flat. I
1: mean, really, the only exception to that is if you're diving in dirty, close-quartered situations where, let's say, you're hunting for lingcod and you got five feet of visibility and you're using a sixty-centimeter gun. Yeah, yeah. Then, of course, you want a single wrap because a double wrap's going to get wrapped up in the structure you got five feet of viz, you're going to spend the rest of your afternoon trying to untangle that shit, right? So that's kind of, everything has a place. But for the mass, the the majority of hunting situations, you're better off doing a double wrap, letting that shaft go to its full potential. I mean, I will rig a gun to where it pulls three feet of real line out. So it's not, you know, so its effective range is beyond the double wrap. Because it's powered properly,
3: yeah. And going back right. to like this Dynema thing for shooting line, how it's gonna, how I feel it's gonna set a standard. A lot of has to do with it with different colors. Like Brian was just saying, like for guys who are probably shooting diving like Northern California, like mad guys when it's real dirty water, I think a white dynema would be ideal for them. That way, if they have to the surface back up, they can actually see, maybe hopefully see the white Dyneema sticking out of the hole. So they know where to dive down back to and whatnot. So I think those different colors of um, shooting line is going to have definitely a purpose as well, you know. Even if like in Hawaii, which sh- diving in green water, a pink shooting line stands out at thirty feet, real bright, you know, and stuff like that. Or even red, yellow, you know, stuff like that. So, Dyneema is the way to go in everything I think now, and
1: as opposed to black mono.
3: Yeah. Ima- imagine you shot a fish sixty feet down
1: wrapped a couple coral heads, hit underneath the ledge. You got to do a couple recovery dives and you're trying to see, you're trying to plan your dive. Okay, I got to go to that coral head first and unwrap that. Then I got to go to that coral head and unwrap that. If you can visualize the line from the surface, you can plan that out. If you can't, you're just doing a blind drop and you're like, where the hell's that line? Okay, I did that. Now where the hell's that line?
3: You're following the line through these coral heads with like, black or clear mono. I remember this when they used to always use mono. Okay, it's going this way. It's going this way. Where you're on the surface and you see that bright yellow shooting line, uh, Dyneema, like, okay, boom, 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 boom. So actually, I'm actually going to start right here, unwrap it right here and pull it out this way. You know? So like Brian said, you can visualize your plan of uh, attack when you're on on the top and you can know exactly and how safely you can untangle your fish and whatnot, you know? So Dynema is gonna set some standards it's good i i see a really good future for dyneema and it, it's weird that i still see some old school guys still using mono and i i try to persuade them hey man try use this dyneema stuff it, it, it's you you'll save so much money on mono you never use it again for shooting line but they're just they're just old, old school guys setting their ways you know and there's nothing wrong with that either but if you're a diver and you shoot you shoot a lot of fish with mono and you're losing a lot of fish because reef cuts of mono, time to make that switch to Dynemo for sure. So I've got
2: Yeah, I shoot nothing so but Dynemo. As far, as,
3: Dyneema, as, far yeah. as longevity,
1: my my ninety centimeter single that I use all the time. And when I say all the time, I'm talking about diving anywhere from one to three days a week. You know, which equate you know, equals out to you know, 30 to 50 or more dives per year. I've had that same 1.4 Dyneema on there for over a year. And I have shot dozens and dozens of fish in reef, wrapped coral, wrapped under the structure, recovered them, looked down the length of the Dyneema, no damage.
3: And you got to think too, because... The longevity of the the shooting line, you buy one roll of dyneema, that's gonna last you a lifetime. So you're making one initial investment of one point four dyneema, and it's gonna provide shooting line for four, five, six, seven guns, and it's gonna last a lifetime. You never have to buy another roll of dyneema ever again. You know, that's how that's how badass that stuff is. And I don't know if people know the history of Dynema. Yeah. So back in... Uh, so when Dynema first came out, I think it was like 18 years ago, when it first started kind of making an approach to the spearfishing world. Uh, Dynema was originally used for sails, for sailboats. I don't know if people knew that. Because if it's lightness and it's, it's, it's uh, strength, they wanted a rope to outline their sails, but still be light enough where the wind can catch the sail. And so they were using Dyneema for sails. I think somebody in Australia discovered Dyneema and started using it for shooting line way, way back when, but it never caught momentum for some reason. Just like roller guns. Roller guns is old technology from back in, I think, the early 70s. The California guys invented the roller gun, actually. And it kind of gained momentum, and then it lost, and it got it disappeared, and now it reappeared. It's, it's trippy
2: you know yeah that's kind of a trip too because i remember first seeing it's funny you mentioned the sailing thing first seeing dyneema at work and then getting it for work um because we we really needed strong line um at west marine and the raw like the Roblo line or whatever rob line i can't remember exactly the brand but and then trying all these different types of spectra dyneema but it was all the sailing products that they were using because in my mind i was like i need the thinnest strongest stuff i could find and then it was like okay this stuff tangles really easy this stuff's not as brazen resistant and just going through that that trial period um and yeah you know like you guys said though doing that i learned so much more i became like a line expert right because you're just like constantly like learning not an expert but i mean your knowledge of what the definition of spectra and dynama is and the different kinds hollow core whatever it is you know you learn so much more that way um so somebody had asked about saying that cable shooting line was bad uh w- was it damaged the muzzle of uh, roller guns? is have you I mean, heard it, that it really
1: depends how you're rigging it, right? So a lot of the muzzles that are being manufactured today may have a metal bridge, right? And some of them may have a plastic bridge. Uh-huh. And if it's composed of plastic, you know, you want something that's at least 30 to 40% nylon because that increases the structural strength of it as opposed to it just being brittle and chipping. But that goes back to how are you rigging it, right? Are you making the proper size loop? Are you crimping appropriately? Um, Do you have fibers that are loose? Are you making sure that it's tight after it's loaded? I think those are all variables unique to the gun that makes a difference whether you're going to get wrapped up in your line or whether you're going to cause damage to your muzzle. You know, so it's difficult to do a hard and fast, but in all reality, cable shooting line doesn't really have a place for many species. You know, unless you're specifically targeting dog tooth, where, where there's dog tooth, there's a shit ton of sharks that are going to bite through your line and you're going to lose your fish in your shaft. You really don't need to shoot with cable. Like you don't need it to shoot a wahoo or a mahi or even a tuna really dog tooth is the only species that cable is necessary because the sharks are guaranteed going to be on that fish and they're going to bite through your dyneema.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, and, and the area you're hunting, but with com- a combination of the reef, which in, at least when that dog tooth runs it, dyneema does stretch like 10%, but it does, it can stretch with cable. There is zero stretch and you know, um, but with the reef being the way it is and those fish that run and then the sharks, like it is the, it's just makes this perfect, like uh combination of well, you need to use cable. Yeah. Like done, you know, I know people do it with with Dyneema, but I'm just not going to take. That yeah, if risk. you're going
1: to spend thousands yeah, of dollars I, I can to it. charter a boat and go somewhere exotic to shoot dog tooth, you want to make sure that you're using the appropriate gear. You know, but there's also the caveat to using right cable is cable trains, cable kinks. If you use it on your slip tip, once it's kinked, guess what? You got to change it. Right. So, so it's kind of, you know, it could be cost prohibitive. It could be labor intensive, but if you're spending $5,000 and you're trying to land a dream fish, fuck it. (laughs) I'm I'm spending
2: it. 100%. Not a boy. There we go. We're getting somewhere now. No, I agree with you. Um, Somebody also, uh, I saw your response. Some of your responses to the questions. Uh, when you asked, "Hey, what were some topics you'd be interested in if we're when we're chatting?" and somebody said the blue uh, was it the blue parrotfish debate?
1: Oh, I'll, I'll let Al take that one. So I I guess I
2: because I, I this is coming from a mainlander, dude. I don't like know. I mean, well, I, know you know, a I guess bit I'll be the, the
3: bad guy here and I'll lose friends ahead. over this topic. <laughs> 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 but no, I mean people. People in Hawaii do whatever, I don't care what people do. But you know, I just hope people have like a sense of like uh, sustainability when they do this. But as far as like uhus go, a lot of people don't understand. Well, how should I start this? Uhus are great, they're tasty. I-, I see why people love them, I see why people shoot them. But in my lifetime diving here on Kauai, I've seen a huge depletion in the population of uhus here. And that's mostly due because. A lot of people are shooting the blue ones, the males, okay? So parrotfish, uhus, they have a huge role in the ecosystem. They eat dead coral so new coral can grow, okay? And once you start eliminating that fish out of of the ecosystem, you're going to have a lot of dead coral. No new coral can grow. You're going to have a shitty ecosystem with barely any life. With uhus, most people don't realize the life cycle of the uhus uh oohoo uh, is a, a harrow fish. You're going to have one male, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight females. Now that one male, that blue one, is going to be breeding with all these females, okay? It takes about eight to ten years for a female to turn into a male. So if you take that one male out of that harem it's going to take the other female about six to eight years to become a male to breed so you're gonna have a six to eight year period where they won't be reproducing. So if you keep shooting all those oohs, they're gonna be gone. So I mean you can shoot ooos, just leave the blue ones alone. You know, they're they're the breeders, and the perfect size ones are the small two, three pounders, and they're all red. That means they're still female. Now, when you have the ooh as a red head and green body that means they're already a terminal male. They're already reproducing. They haven't completely changed their color yet. Okay. Um, there's a reason why Maui banned all taking of blue ooze. And I just read a report about a year ago on the uhu population in Maui. It it has come back so well that it, it's amazing the comeback that that fish has made. And we kind of need to do that here in Kauai, you know.
1: But I, but I think it kind of boils down to what we what we initially talked about in the way of being a responsible spear fisherman because we have the ability to pick exactly what we want. There's no bycatch, right? It's not like fishing where you don't know what's going to bite your line. And you, you can always catch and release, but sometimes if you pull a fish up from deep water, they implode. So you can't put it back. You know, but when you have that ability to pick and choose... It's your responsibility to understand the species you hunt. So a lot of people may not have known that Uhu's role in the ecosystem. They also produce sand, which helps with beach erosion. If you take them all, not only do you have a dead reef, you have nothing but reef, right? So all of your beaches erode, the sand doesn't get replaced.
3: One Uhu produces 2,000 pounds of sand a year. One uhu. So if you got 10 uhu. Holy shit. Yeah, you got 20,000 pounds of sand per year. That's how much sand those things produce. I mean, everything in the ocean has a specific role it plays to sustain the ecosystem. Like, I'm no biologist, but this is all common sense shit. You got to understand where you're hunting and what role it plays in this environment, you know. So, I mean, people can in Hawaii, right. they can keep shooting blues, whatever. I don't give a fuck. But, but don't say shit when there's no fucking uhus ex- left. Exactly. Don't be a fucking bitch, bitch about it. There's no fish because you fucking shot them all, you know. But like I said, I don't give a fuck. Keep shooting them. Cause, cause, keep shooting them because I want to see you bitch and cry so I can say I told you so, motherfucker. So, that's just me. Though.
2: All right. I love it. Yeah. Um, no, we have, we have similar situations, uh, you know, with our fish. I'm sure everybody does. Right. But because every fish is unique in its own way. Right. Um, but I, I had talked to you about this before when I saw like somebody, uh, had, uh, a dock just littered with mahi. There was probably like 20, I don't know, 30 mahi, you know, but people, and to someone that doesn't know, going back to like the responsibility, like it looks like you just went crazy and shot or uh, caught all these things. So it doesn't look real good. But then again, if you were to dive further into it, they reach, you know, 20 pounds in a year and sexual maturity within a few months. Like, so it's a very sustainable fish, which is great. But then it's like, does that, that does that help the image that we want? You know, do I really fucking need to go? Like the limit here is 10. and and I've been putting some stuff out and a lot of other people have, but it's like been the most insane, you know, Dorado Mahi season for us that I ever remember. And I just think they're like my favorite fish looking and everything because it's just so cool. And and they're, they're the novelty of we don't get them here all the time. Right. So I jumped in the water last week and, you know, there was just hundreds. Of That's them. so sick. And like. Yeah, it's so cool. I shot like five, and then I just started swimming with them. You know, well, well. Once like, you
1: have enough fish, let's you know, say for the week, what's the point yeah. in overtaking? I mean, we'll see. Like during ahi open right. season over here, guys are the bites on fire, and these these fuckers are pulling seven, ten ahi's in the boat, and they went out with eighty pounds of ice. So all those fish come in, they're <laughs> right. fucking burnt. They'll be. Fifty to hundred pound ahis in the fucking dumpster at the washdown. What's the point of that?
2: Wow. Yeah. So we could talk specifically about that too, because a lot of people don't understand why tuna are so unique um, in, in that regard of burning up and all of that, because they're cold are they're warm blooded? Number one, and we see it out here with bluefin, where you don't even necessarily want to throw them on ice uh, initially because they'll try to heat themselves up and they'll not burn themselves up because they have the ability to bump their temperature up 20 degrees outside of sea temperature. Um, but with the ahi where you guys are, I had no idea that was that bad. Like,
3: Well, the, the terrible part about it is when the ahi bite is on here, everybody wants to go catch an ahi. I mean, that's understandable. That's great, you know? But as far as some people's perspective of catching Ahi and selling it, they don't realize when the bite's on, the price per pound for Ahi drops significantly. It could be an average of four fifty a pound, but when the bite's on and everybody's catching seven to ten fish per boat, that price of Ahi just went down to a dollar a pound. And not only that, at that mass of a bite, you can't even give away that much fish. So, about maybe six years ago, we had this problem where everybody caught so much ahi, the price per pound went down to 75 cents per pound. People couldn't sell their fish, people couldn't make back their money for the expenses of the boat, people couldn't give away fish because people were giving each other away, uh, giving each other so much ahi that people were like, oh, no, I'm good, thank you. You know, so you're left with a couple hundred pounds of fish. And you do not know what to do with it. Like Brian said, they were ending up in the dumpsters. Which is sad, you know.
2: Yeah, what a waste. Like, I, go, I, I wish go, somebody would have called I'll me. I'll go fishing you know? out on my
3: jet ski. <laughs> and I'll go bottom fishing. I'll catch two, three fish. And I'm done. I'm coming home. You know, I can, load right. it. I can load up my jet ski. No problem. I can catch a dozen fish. But what do I need a dozen fish for? You know. And then also, like people want to. I understand, you know, having a very nice boat, that's badass. I mean, I dream of having a really nice boat and stuff like that too, but, you know, the nicer the boat, the bigger the boat, the more expensive it is. You know, before I bought this jet ski, I told myself, well, if I get this jet ski, expenses are going to be super low to run it. I wouldn't have that perspective in my head that, oh, I got to sell fish to make up for gas money, to make up for maintenance. You know, so I bought something that's cheap running where I actually go out and enjoy fishing and not having to worry about selling fish for expensive, like to pay for the boat and stuff like that, or, you know. But a lot of people with big boats, they have to catch fish. They have to pay for the fuel. They have to pay for the maintenance. And they'll, they'll catch one fish, they'll be like, oh, the market's only two fifty, I got to catch two more, three more. And they're in their mind, and they keep fishing. They'll catch two, three more, and you know. They'll come in, and they'll just barely break even. And they'll go back out the next day to try and profit. But it's just a vicious cycle they are putting themselves into a lot of times. And that's when overfishing happens, right? So that's one aspect of why overfishing happens.
2: This episode is brought to you by Neptonics Spearfishing. Uh, Go check out Neptonics.com for the absolute best, most reliable spearfishing gear at some of the best prices in the market as well. Uh, the thing that I like about Neptonics is, you know, the gear has been tested on there and they're not going to have some generic crap on there. It's all gear that works and people use it every day uh, with great results. So don't forget to put in the Spear Factor 10 promo code to get 10% off. Neptonics.com So I get this question a lot as far as can I recommend a charter? And I absolutely can. Lineage charters... Here in San Diego, uh, does giant bluefin tuna trips, uh, multi-day trips, and Captain Bly is your guy. He's got over 30 years of spearfishing and commercial fishing experience, so be sure to check out lineagecharters.com for offshore action. Less is more. I've said it in other podcasts, too, where uh, my first boat was a uh, 16-foot aluminum, like a single 30 horse. And I miss that boat every day because you take it out to go do what I 90% of the time I dive just in the kelp heads, And that thing would be like 20 exactly. bucks a day, you know, just going to the same spot would be like 60 with a dual outboard, like, and then the time it takes to maintain it and the time it takes to wash it down. And it's like, man, I talked to John and he got, he got his aluminum and I was like, yeah, I. I miss this, man. <laughs> you know, it's not every day you're going out all the time to go out, spend 12 hours, 16 hours chasing tuna around. Like that is the novelty of you know. Now it's just I want to get in the water, so it's the cheapest, best way to do that and enjoy it.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm not know? trying to get people to hate me about this I uh, situation, but you know, I just wish people would be a little bit more thoughtful in the process. And like, I don't ever want to see 150 pound tunas in a dumpster ever again. You know, that was just, that was heartbreaking. That was uh, maybe kind of upset and angry. You know, just the waste, you know. Is, is... But I understand, you know, people here, especially in Hawaii, like our fuel, our cost of living, our cost of parts, maintenance is so expensive that they have to catch fish in order to enjoy fishing. They have to be able to sell it to enjoy fishing. Right. But yeah, I mean, nothing against the Ayi fishermen here, though. just want to put that out there. <laughs> I don't want to be hated. No, Next time we go fine. in the water, and be like, "Oh, there's Yanko, that fucker talking shit."
2: So uh, I'm over that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so speaking, um, let's have some uh, another. I got another question uh, in regards to um, sap, uh, sh- Excuse me, shaft size overhang, basically too. Um, what is the ideal overhang, right? Because you see it across the board. And my understanding that I've learned is like nine inches or whatever around that. Um, But there's still people that maybe just have three. There's still people that have like really, really long. Like, what is the ideal? What is what do you feel is the ideal length? And what are the repercussions if you get it wrong? Do the um, archery example?
3: Uh, Yeah. uh, Okay. So shaft overhang there's I think there's a couple of aspects to shaft overhang why some people prefer longer overhangs or shorter overhangs when I had when I was using wooden goods I prefer I preferred longer overhangs because I would aim off the tip it was really easy to aim with you know it was dead nuts you know now you know I noticed with the shorter overhang you get much better accuracy much more penetration and whatnot so you know I refer to it as bow and arrow setup i refer to a shaft as an arrow the longer the arrow the more flex you're going to have the shorter the arrow the more stiffer it's going to have the more it's going to be able to absorb more power and it'll be able to be trajected properly accurately you know so it all depends on your length of gun what you what you want to use it for how easy you want to aim and whatnot but for roller guns that i'm using now I use a real short overhang maybe four or five inches because the trajectory of the, the shaft on the roller gun is so flat it's just point and shoot. Where in the wooden gun I noticed they'll have kind of an arch. The shaft would have kind of an arch so I'll have to bring up my tip, aim off the tip and then watch the shaft kind of arch and hit the fish. So it's all oh, it kind of depends on what you use and The shorter the shaft though, man, that added stiffness to absorb a little bit more power makes a huge difference for sure. And Brian can definitely add on more to this too because he experimented a lot with that shaft overhang stuff. So so there's a lot of
1: different equations in the realm of powering, right? So you have to consider what's the mass of the object you're attempting to project. If you're using a seven mil, which is 932nd shaft, and you've got an excessive overhang of beyond 11 inches, expect a lot of shaft width. And because you've increased the mass, now you attempt to increase the power to project it flatter. But in doing so, you increase the shaft width because you put more power behind a wet noodle. If you want to get greater range, you need to increase the diameter of the shaft, which thereby makes the shaft... Stiffer. So if you want to use a shaft at a longer length, increase the diameter. If you want to use the shaft at a lesser diameter, shorten the shorten the shaft. But understand that the powering variable depicts how reactive that shaft's going to move through the water. So the common misconception is even with a roller, you can still overpower a 7mm shaft because of its diameter, because of the amount of flex based on the power that's put behind it. So these are all equations that have to be tested. Control setting like a pool is ideal because you can get the exact distance from things. You don't have a cross current. You don't have a surge. You can actually focus on the grouping and the penetration values of things. So for anyone that like wants to really geek out on it, that's how you figure it out. You could spend a whole week in a pool. Okay, let's try this shaft at this length, at this diameter with this powering variant. Now let's try to add four inches to the shaft and see what happens. Oh, it looks like it dropped. Okay, let's change the power curve. Let's change the power variable, right? So I think that's a huge limiting factor to people going from conventional to roller because they've gotten comfortable with powering conventionals. And when they try to cross over they don't understand, you know, you pull the trigger the first time, it doesn't feel like there's any juice behind it because it doesn't kick back at you. And then you go, okay, well, let's power it up. And how come the shafts aren't accurate anymore? Well, you just increase the shaft width because you're not going to gain recoil because they cancel each other out. So this is where if you really want to get into gun building or you really want to learn these things for yourself, you have to put the time in. And if you're not willing to do that, then pay a fucking professional to figure it out for you because that professional put that time in.
3: As far as like a shaft whip, shaft overhang goes, I saw something really unique about a year ago. This gun builder out of Florida. He was experimenting with carbon fiber shafts with titanium heads and a titanium rear with a Dyneema core. And I was like, whoa, how's it shooting? He was, kind of breaking all the, he was kind of breaking down the science of it like that. I was like, well, you know, that carbon fiber is going to have a lot of whip, a lot of flex, you know. He's like, well, no, really, because it shoots really fast. Because of its speed, it has a super amount of penetration. And he looked like, I'm not a physicist or an engineer, but he was trying to break it down to me. And it kind of made sense. So I tell him, hey, you ever think about making those carbon shafts spined? In specific spines like how an arrow is for different power weights and he was like no never thought about that so I'm trying to experiment with that I told him, I'm telling you this because you have the money to experiment with it you've got the machine shop and all of this and um, he never got back to me I don't think he tried it. I told him well you got to think about this way I shoot a 70 pound bow with a 350 spine you know and if you were to apply that kind of concept to a spear gun, knowing the amount of power that those bands put out, you could spine a shaft properly and have that spine, have that shaft not whip and be able to shoot at its full power potential. And I was explaining this to him and he was like really intrigued about it, but he, he never got back to me or whatever. So I don't know if he had actually gone that far with it, but I thought it was a cool concept that he tried to make carbon shafts, you know.
2: Well, I, I think about that, and then like also tungsten, like different other yeah. metals that are either heavier or lighter. <laughs> and if you change the diameter, would it go faster with a super thin, you know, all these crazy things that, like you said, I don't have the money or the machinery for it. So someone else could pick that well, up. You're, and, you're, uh, then your tungsten back to shaft's
1: going to be upwards of 500 to $800 each
2: because it's
3: a very expensive
1: metal. Yeah, I dense saw that when I looked into could, it.
2: Could you imagine <laughs> shooting
3: an eight millimeter? titanium shaft that never bends or breaks <laughs> you could shoot like dog tuna or a big bluefin tuna and never have to worry about that thing ever bending it'd be like an initial one-time initial yeah, it, investment for the rest of your life until you lose it, it yeah. Uh,
2: yeah yeah and then you'd have every shaft manufacturer like hating what yeah being out of business or yeah. hating you right because you designed something but I know we got to get going here. But I also uh, wanted to kind of close it out with uh, crazy Kauai stories. You guys live in Kawaii, you grow up there. I mean, you follow Al. You know, there's a lot of crazy fucking tourists, man. The time, he'll tell you, Jesus, these motherfucking hollies, bro. bro.
3: <laughs> yesterday, bro. Holy <laughs> shit! I was road rage big time yesterday. I, I was snapping. I was pissed. But anyway, yeah. Uh, That's my crazy, quiet story. It's mostly tourists and road raging. Because I'm I'm driving everywhere, all day, every day. Like, I'm a landscaper. I'm driving from one job to another job to another job, and I got to deal with all this, and it's just nuts. As far as diving goes, I haven't had any. I, I think our island is unique
1: in its shape as opposed to the other islands. We're very susceptible to the winds, to the swells, Um, the tides. We have a lot of river outlets here. So if it rains, you know, it it can just turn to mud. Um, If there's a swell on one side of the island, it can wrap to the other side of the island. You know, the topography is very different. Some On the south side, the reef maybe only goes out to about 45 feet and then it pretty much becomes sand. So when you have a swell or an incoming tide, something that surge creates and kicks up the sand, it can make it green. Whereas other sections of the island may be more reef structure. And, you know, these are all like the variables that you learn as you go, right? Ideally you get so experienced that you can look at the moon phase. You can look at the tide calendar. You can look at what the swell direction, the wind direction, and you can already know I'm going to dive here at this time of day and I expect to see this kind of fish that should be everyone's goal. Cause you're not out there right. Fucking around seeing nothing for six hours. Right.
2: Well, and the other side of that is you, you learn those things when you're young, when you have that availability and the free time so that when you get old and you have kids and you're busy, you got to pinpoint your days to go. You only get so many of them for your wife is like, you better get your ass home. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. If, if you got a you two hour I mean? diving just, window, you want to make sure you're going to be productive Yeah, because if you don't bring home fish, you're right. not going to get to go diving as often as you want to.
2: That is a hundred percent accurate. Like, yes. Um back to the tourist thing Al let's just say uh, what are the top three things that you think that that piss you off or that you notice with tourists that tourists shouldn't do just for everybody out there that's thinking about coming (sighs) to the islands they shouldn't do um, when they get there
3: okay so my pet peeve with tourists is they have to understand they have to respect our people our way of life and our culture they have to completely do that. Don't be fucking coming here, being rude to locals, being fucking disrespectful to locals, disrespecting our culture, being racist against Hawaiians and shit like that, going to sacred places, fucking moving here or fucking developing on sacred land and shit like that. That's all disrespectful shit. Um, My other thing is, this ain't the fucking mainland. Don't drive like a goddamn maniac. People drive defensively here, okay? If I'm ready to merge, if I'm in a merge lane ready to turn left, don't fucking come out of right field and try to move your way in here. You're going to get a fucking punch in the face. That's another thing. And tipping your hospitality workers. A lot of my friends are in F&B, hotels, and they tell me horror stories about how rude these people are. They don't tip and whatnot. And it's, it's fucking sad. It really is. You know, uh, I've, I've worked in a restaurant for 20 years. Tipping is how we survive. how we pay the rent. how we pay our bills. It's, you know, and a lot of these tourists, I've been hearing horror stories. These tourists are going back down on a tipping percentage. More like 12 to 15, maybe 18%. Nobody's tipping 20% anymore, you know, and stuff like that. You know, take care. These tourists got to understand, you know, Hawaii is completely based off tourism. These people who work in the hospitality industry are banking off you to pay their bills. Take care of them, you know. That's all I ask is those three simple things. It's drive good, respect our people and culture, and tip well, you know. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's getting worse, really. It really is.
2: When you say when you say respect your people and culture, though, you're referring to like just be fucking courteous, yeah. Right? Which
1: it's simple. I feel like
2: that's across the board, though. That's lacking. Well, it, if you I mean, exactly. if you they,
1: stay at someone's home, you're not going to put your feet up on their table. You're not going to go rifling through their fridge. You know, you're not you're not going to use their expensive bathroom products. You know, you're going to be respectful of your host.
3: So basically, like, you know, there's an incident of a North Shore Queen's Bath. So in the wintertime, the county puts up a gate. They close Queen's Bath. They don't allow people to walk down there because it's dangerous because of the huge north swells. We always have a handful of rescues and a handful of people who die up there. So there was a video going on Instagram a while back where this local guy was walking the reef down there. And was telling the tourists, like, hey, I want to let you know, you know it's kind of dangerous today. You, should, you guys shouldn't be down here. I know for a fact the gate was closed and the tourists were like, well, why are you down here? Well, and the local guys being really nice. Said, well, I know these waters. I was born and raised up here. I know where the safe area is to stand on these rocks and my way through the cliffs. And so, these tourists decided to get really hostile and really aggressive. Like, fuck, you know, you can't tell us what to do and all this shit. It's like, this local guy was trying to warn them, don't get too close to the edge. You're going to fucking die. And so, in this video, the father of the couple decides to come rushing in, try to slap the guy and attack the guy. That's just fucking disrespectful shit. You know what I mean? If a local guy comes up and tells you, it's like, hey, don't get too close, you can get hurt, fucking respect that shit. You know? And I'm sorry to break it to a lot of you tourists, but the only reason why we're nice to you is because we're probably in the hospitality industry. Because if we saw you in the street in probably probably wouldn't give a fuck about you, to be honest with you. <laughs> sorry to break, break it to you, but that's just the fucking truth. You know? No, and that, that – it, it's, it's never been
2: – Well, I mean, you're supposed to – Al, you're supposed to have aloha, man. I do have like, aloha, and I'm sharing this along respect. with you,
3: so you let the tourists know, just be nice.
2: <laughs> yes, sir.
3: Uh, aloha is kind of like... <laughs> huh?
2: Al talks a big game, bro, but he's really yeah, caring. So,
3: man. you know, it's honest. like, just be cool when you come so, here, just be on. really nice and respectful, and you're going to have a great, great time. You will. You know, and you will make friends with the local people, you're going to learn a lot and stuff like that, and... You know, we want you to come here. We want you to have a good time, but we want you to leave your shitty attitudes back at home. You know. 100%. Yeah, so I mean, I I yeah. I don't hate all tourists. I've met some really great tourists. For instance, like um, I had this family when I was a charter boat captain. I met this family from Texas. <sighs> amazing, amazing family. They came and fished with me for every year in the summertime for like 12 years in a row to know each other and whatnot and became really good friends and whatnot and so not all tourists are bad you know i'm just giving tourist shit right now and i just experienced a lot of bullshit that's why but you know just just be cool that's all just be cool and like like the saying yeah. goes like a lot of local people here for the tourists either you're gonna adapt or you get slapped yeah. <laughs> Same, you know so
2: yep Yeah, Brian, what were you going to say about Aloha? I was going to say,
1: you know, Aloha is very similar to respect, right? Respect needs to be earned. Whereas if you come over with the wrong mentality, you know, park your car anywhere you want, trespass across somebody's property to get to some location you found in a guide map, leave your rubbish behind, don't expect any Aloha because you're not putting out any respect.
3: You get what you give.
1: Yep. And it's really yeah. as
3: simple as that, right? right? You
1: you move through life acting the way that you hope to be reciprocated upon.
3: You know what I noticed, too, about the tourists here lately? Is, um, well, we're definitely like, uh, there's over tourism on Kauai, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rent-a-car companies, they put out a report maybe like three months ago here on Kauai. There's 7,000 rent cars on the road per day here on Kauai. 7,000, okay? Um so
2: And there's not many that there's not many uh roads either. Yeah, like you, one have been here, we got one two lane road yeah. that
3: goes around the island, you know.
2: Yeah. No, seriously. Yeah,
3: it's yeah. oh see I kinda lost track. Um I was gonna say, but Yeah, I had a good point today. Uh, you- I totally <laughs> forgot. Oh so cab so, uh,
2: No, there's too many there's too many tourists you were saying. Yeah,
3: there's too many
1: tourists There's all the
2: rental cars, there's seven thousand. Well, even
3: the
1: even the Hawaii Tourism Authority did a recent study and they said the maximum amount of tourists Kauai can handle is one point two million per year. And we're at one point seven. So the infrastructure, the roadways, the shopping outlets, it can't sustain the volume beyond one point two. So what happens when you overuse a place? It degrades it, right? And, then, you know, because I would visualize myself personally. If I'm going to a island destination, I want to go to a place where there's hardly anyone on the beach. What the fuck do you want to go to Waikiki and, like, oh, excuse me, is this spot taken? That's that's not a yep. island
3: vacation. Oh, I remember what I was going to say now. So...
2: Well, oh, Brian, that's exactly yeah. why my family, we we try to go to Kauai. Yeah. I don't want any part of Oahu, like nothing against that. But I just I just want to be somewhere where it's mellow, you know? So with the,
3: with the tourists yeah. nowadays, go ahead. this is what I noticed with the people, okay? From when I was waiting tables when I was about 18 years old, we had all like the baby boomers, you know? The old, the old school guys, the older generation, those are the guys that really established America with their businesses and whatnot. You know, they made it really big. They prospered very well, and they were very, very humble and genuine people. I've met a lot of people waiting tables through my life, and though that generation of people were amazing, wonderful, wonderful people, now we're at a point where their wealth has passed on to the kids. Okay. Those kids are the ones that are actually the assholes that are visiting Kauai now. So we don't have the problem with the, the older generation. It's this new generation that's coming up. You know, 25, 35-year-olds who inherited all their family's wealth and whatnot, thinking they're hot shit just because they're coming here and spending a little money. You know, that that we have a weird transition of type of people that's coming up. It's kind of fucked up. You know, like when I was waiting tables, those older generation, man, they're fucking awesome. You actually, I actually learned shit from those people. You know, it's just, can't learn shit from this generation.
2: (laughs) Grumpy, grumpy Uncle Al. Yeah, no, I I think, uh, you know, we have spoke about this before, the, the symptoms and the things that you're seeing in Kauai is like a microcosm, though, of just a bigger issue you know um or uh, what i notice is that people they travel places the people that are well off or and you know god bless them for that but in certain cultures like you're talking about respect the culture nobody gives a shit you're not valued by how much money you yeah. have like if you have a lot of money that's great right like super cool i mean awesome but that doesn't equate respect or equate like we don't i say we because i kind of raised my kids the same way like we don't i don't care like that doesn't motivate me what motivates me is the type of your character the type of person you are and a lot of other cultures value the same shit like you could throw money on them. they're like we don't want it like especially a lot of polynesian or um even in Guam, a lot of island of course they're like i what i don't why do i want to do that i don't need that i'm good you know um yeah and i, I think some of us some of the well off some of the weller off, you know, individuals don't understand that. Some do. But you know, you only remember the assholes, right? You don't really remember it's hard to remember this the nice people, you know. So everybody be respectful or Uncle I will pay you a visit on Kauai.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so Brian, to kind of wrap this up, um You obviously have a metric shit ton of knowledge and you took all your knowledge and put it into action into your company. And what is the name of your company? Because I absolutely love it. So
1: the name of the company I started two years ago is called Uncle Learn You How, which is actually a term that's very specific to Hawaii. Because when you have like that um, juvenile mentality of thinking that you know everything, not wanting to take advice from someone who's been there, done that, and then you make a huge mistake and realize later that you should have listened. right? So that's kind of the concept of it is someone that thinks they know everything already but lacks the experience to actually know things, and having the life experience to be able to share things. So that's kind of the concept behind that company is when we came up in spearfishing, nobody taught us anything. Right? We we were using like bodyboard fins, Churchills, a milk jug for a float with a coat hanger bent, <laughs> a high volume mask, no weight belt, surf shorts, and a and a fiberglass seahorse three prong and yeah. you, you you shot a fish and you ate it you're like oh shit that tastes like a rubber slipper i'm not eating that fish again and then you ate, and you shoot another one you're like hey this one tastes pretty good i'll shoot that one again right and then you kind of evolved as equipment came out and then you tried different things but you were never afraid to try new things and you always did a lot of observing like i call spearfishing snorkeling because you're observing things you're observing the species the companionship of the fish the hunting tactics of the fish how they relate to the bait how they relate to the tide and the moon phase that's what you should be doing the whole time is snorkeling and it's not until you actually shoot and land a fish that it becomes spearfishing i've said this before i think on Noob noobs podcast but that's if you look at it that way to where you're an observer and you're trying to absorb as much as you can from that ocean environment. And that will, in turn, make you a better hunter. And when you're a better hunter, you can hunt more ethically with a sustainability, stain, sustainable focus in mind. And only take what you need and as much as you need and leave the rest for the other people. Let those species breed accordingly. That should be everyone's goal.
2: Well said, well said. So, if um, someone wanted to get in contact with you about building a gun for them or some of the um, some of the many sub uh, items and the things that you on your site that you have that you've personally recommend and use, how would they get a hold? Sure. Of you?
1: So you know on, on Instagram, it's at Uncle Learn You How, and there's a link to the webpage which is Uncle You know, my phone number's on the web page. I'm happy to speak to people as long as they're not just trying to waste my time and get information just so they can go buy it from Amazon, you know. But I'm happy to share knowledge with people. And, you know, as you said earlier, the type of fish someone shoots, the behaviors that they demonstrate really shows you who they are as a person. Right. So I'll bend over backwards to help people that are humble, that are seeking knowledge, that are trying to become better at something. And I'll write people off pretty quick if you're just trying to be an asshole and steal information so you can apply it to your own company or your own products.
2: Fair enough. Fair enough. Al, um, how do people get a hold of you?
3: I don't know if you want to get a hold of me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) If you get a hold of Al, or Al gets a hold of you, it might be a problem.
3: Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm really nobody. I mean, I'm just a fun guy to follow on Instagram and laugh at. You know, if you get a good laugh every once in a while, yeah, you can go follow my storyline.
2: I share like half your shit with my brother because he's like <laughs> a huge fan. Because he's like, I love that one guy, dude. It's so great because he's like, my brother's pretty high strung. <laughs> like, fuck yeah, fuck yeah. Right on, yeah. uh, man. I'm glad um, I can
3: make somebody laugh.
2: Uh, uh, yeah i mean like like brian said um, too
3: like I'm, I'm more than happy to help but you gotta show me like you actually tried though if you haven't tried anything you can just come asking me for help i'll be like no go find out on your own but if you tell me hey you know what i tried this i tried that it hasn't worked out i did this and this happened you know i just can't figure it out but okay i see you tried and i i admire that i respect that and i will help you but for guys that just like want to be thrown into success right away, I'm like, no, you, you got to earn that shit. But yeah, like yeah. my my Instagram is like Kiko Man Uncle Show You How, you know, <laughs> check it out. And then uh yeah, like I said, if you, I'm more than happy to help people too. It's, it's fine.
2: And and I will say Al talks a big game, and he is. He truly lives his aloha lifestyle because when I came, I remember when I came to the islands and you had messaged, Hey, I'd like to meet you. I was like, I don't even know this dude. And I'm very cautious too, just because you got my family and stuff there. And you met me with the, the, you know, the gift package and just, you could tell immediately this is like a genuine fucking solid guy. So yeah, he might smack you, and then he might take you out for lunch later, I don't
3: know. So. But you you expressed yeah. the same a lot to me, too. I remember you gave me your dog-toothed tuna jaw, man. You know, that was mind-blowing that you did that for me. I'm, I'm forever honored, you know, and your dog-toothed tuna jaw sits on my little trophy shelf yeah. to this day, you know, and I admire mm-hmm. that all the time, so thank you, too, you know. See, like, that's the thing about social media. You meet a lot of great people like yourself, you know, and and look where we are now. And that was what, like five, six years ago, you know.
2: So,
3: yeah, yeah, I, I'm very thankful that we met and we have, you know, became friends. You know, even San Diego, you stopped by, we talked story, you know, we had a good time.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um it was awesome to see you guys when you were in San Diego, and it was, it was, I was smiling from ear to ear when I saw your post. You know, these motherfuckers came here and just shot a bluefin, and it was so great. To see it all come together couldn't happen to a nicer group of guys, and um, I'm just glad to have linked up with you too as well on social media. And I hope I encourage everybody to pay attention to these two gentlemen. And um, you know, Brian helped me a lot with my roller gun, and I took it out and shot it. And I will say, I am a believer now of that soft, beautiful, super stretchy rubber. Um, and uh, yeah, so thank you guys for being on the show. And um, I wish you all the best. Take care. Right
1: on, Brett. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. Yeah. Take care. So,
2: Aloha. All right, you guys. That's the end of our two-part series with uh, Uncle Al and Uncle Brian from Uncle Learn You How. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you found it uh, entertaining and informative. And uh, don't forget to reach out to Brian if you have any questions on roller guns. Um, and also, if you're looking to step up your spearfishing, don't forget to check out spearfactor.com for uh, online spearfishing courses and also a blog where there's all kinds of information on different types of diving and different different things about diving as well. So uh, take care of you guys. Have a great week and dive safe.